0: Welcome to the Western Bell Podcast Series, with talks on traditional spiritual teaching and its application in the world today. The intention of the series is to offer something useful for those who are drawn to study themselves and engage practice on the spiritual path. New talks are posted twice each month. The content of the talks is for informational purposes only, and not to provide any kind of counseling Medical or professional advice. This podcast is titled Honey in the Heart, the Rasa of Enjoyment, Delight, and Celebration on the Path. The talk was given by Nahama Greenwald on March 4, 2023, via Zoom. Nahama is a physical therapist, an editor, and a musician who for 17 years was a member of the Shri Blues Band, which performed Western bowel music. In this talk, Nahama uses the phrase honey in the heart, which is part of the title of a book by Martine Prechtel to describe the elixir distilled from the process of opening to life with an undefended heart. She says that when we align with reality as it is, we can celebrate all aspects of life. Discussion occurs about ways of coming home through the natural world, And about the experience that some had with her teacher, Lee Lozowick. If there is benefit in this talk for you, please consider sharing the link to it or writing a review on social media or on one of the podcast platforms. Nahama Greenwald.
1: Good evening, everyone. I listened to a talk recently where the speaker who was in Canada began by acknowledging the indigenous land that he was living on, and the indigenous people as the true stewards of the land. And I was really inspired by that. So tonight, I would like to begin this talk by acknowledging the traditional territory of the Hohokam and Apache land that we live on here, and to acknowledge the Yavapai Apache Nation of indigenous people who are the rightful stewards of this land. So if we could just take a moment of silence to honor both the ancestors and the spirit of this land. That being said, a warm welcome to all of you. Thank you for coming. The title of my talk is Honey in the Heart, the rasa of enjoyment, delight, and celebration on the path. First of all, just to give credit where credit is due, Honey in the Heart, I took from the book title by Martin Prechtel called Long Life, Honey in the Heart. So I just want to acknowledge that that comes from him. The word rasa in Sanskrit is loosely translated to mean taste or essence. And so our question is, what does it mean to taste the essence of enjoyment, delight, and celebration on the path? As spiritual practitioners, when our hearts open and we awaken to a greater depth of feeling, we become increasingly sensitized not just to our own suffering, but to that of others and of the entire world. Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche writes, If you search for the awakened heart, if you put your hand through your ribcage and feel for it, there is nothing there except for tenderness. Even if a tiny mosquito lands on it, you feel so touched. You let the world tickle your heart, your raw and beautiful heart. You are willing to open up without resistance and face the world. So when we let the world touch our hearts, as Trumpa says, there is a natural organic inclination to turn towards rather than turn away. We are willing to open up without resistance, as he says, or in other words, to meet reality as it is. When we turn towards something without resistance, with a raw and beautiful and tender heart, whether it's a person, an animal, a flower, or a tree, we become one with it in the moment. And in becoming one with it, we can take it a step further and say that we become one with all of life because of our interconnectedness with all beings through these tendrils of love that wind invisibly through the matrix of creation. So what happens when we turn towards life in this way? What happens is that our hearts break. How can they not, right? Our hearts break from sorrow, and they also break from joy. The heart is initiated into what Father Gregory Boyle calls extravagant tenderness, which is tenderness that is unbridled, disarming, unreasonable, sweet, fierce, and brimming with real feeling. This is an alchemical process, this tenderizing and awakening of the heart in which the heart becomes soft, porous, expansive, deep, burning, aching, and radiant. And it's an alchemical process because the heart is an alchemical vessel. It is capable of transmitting. It is capable of radiating and metabolizing. So there is an elixir that is distilled from this process, which I'm calling the honey in the heart, because this elixir has a sweetness to it like honey. We become tenderized to the mystery and holiness of life with its natural cycles of death and rebirth and how these cycles come to be activated in our own lives And what naturally arises from this is a deep capacity for delight and for enjoyment of life as it is. We align with reality by facing ourselves and our world with an undefended heart, meaning that we are willing to feel it all. And that is the foundation of our enjoyment and what gives rise to our joy. So we celebrate all aspects of our lives not just what is pleasant, what is comfortable, what makes us feel good. So we celebrate hell as well as heaven, bitter as well as sweet, dark as well as light. Father Gregory Boyle, and for those of you who don't know who he is, he's an amazing man. He's a Jesuit priest, and he's the founder of the largest and most successful Gang intervention program in the US. And he says, We are sacramental to our core when we think that everything is holy. So, holy loss, holy impermanence, holy darkness, holy grief, holy love, holy death, holy desire, holy awe, holy mystery all of those deeply human experiences, which we have throughout the course of our lives and which initiate us into the sacred ground of existence itself. And we can say that at the heart of creation, like the mystical traditions tell us, there is bliss and joy and love. The Sufis talk about how all creation is an outpouring of divine love. In the tantric tradition, Creation is described as a blissful surge arising from the passionate lovemaking between Shiva and Shakti. So when we celebrate and we find delight in our own lives, in a sense, we are actually aligning with the blissful, ecstatic heart of creation, which arises out of divine love. Here's a poem by Hafiz. Light will someday split you open even if your life is now a cage. Little by little, you will turn into stars. Little by little, you will turn into the whole sweet amorous universe. Love will surely burst you wide open into an unfettered, blooming new galaxy. A life-giving radiance will come. You will become so free in a wonderful, secret, and pure love that flows from a conscious, one-pointed, infinite light. Oh, look again within yourself and spin in eternal ecstasy. Behold the beautiful one from the vantage point of love. He is conducting the affairs of the whole universe in a treehouse on a limb in your heart. Isn't that a gorgeous poem? I love this poem. I like to look up the meaning and etymology of words. So I looked up the words, delight, celebration, and enjoyment. And I discovered something really cool, which is Julian of Norwich, who was a 14th century mystic, helped to create the English language because she wrote in English when the language of the times was predominantly Latin, especially in the church. So the word enjoy comes from her. And she said, referring to enjoyment, that the fullness of joy is our birthright. And she wrote about enjoyment as embodied joy. The word delight means pleasing in the highest degree to give or afford high satisfaction or joy to affect with great pleasure. And the word celebration is defined as honoring, remembrance, rejoicing, to extol, or praise. So joy is at the root of all three of these words. So here's a quote about joy and a few other things too. But this is from the Zen teacher, Ami Diller. We are messy and imperfect human beings, and yet... When something takes us beneath the surface of this, whether grief or happiness, we often find a wellspring of joy, maybe the same wellspring that gives rise to sorrow. Perhaps our life and practice are asking us simply to get out of the way and to let this full, painful, wild, crazy world flow and live through us. Maybe it is joy opening us rather than we who are opening to joy. Joy is a quality of love for life, which arises when we open to life as it is. Nothing excluded. This is joy. So joy arises when we surrender to the full spectrum of life, where nothing is excluded and when we allow this full, painful, wild, crazy world to flow and live through us, it's when we drop our resistance and we are willing to feel everything that we are celebrating in the deepest possible way, the holy ground of our lived experience. We celebrate the messy and perfect beauty of our lives. So we're not trying to fix it. We're not trying to escape from it, and we're not trying to transcend into some perfect version of ourselves. Rather, we sink into, we reside in this messy and perfect beauty. We allow ourselves to reside in those shaky, dimly lit, and uncertain places where we feel shame, where we are hurt and confused. This is the realm of the feminine, and it is the realm of mercy and compassion, and it's where joy is found and experienced. Here's a quote from Suzuki Roshi The purpose of practice is to accept ourselves. When we truly accept ourselves, we have already become one with existence. When spring comes, We can enjoy the spring flowers. When summer comes, we can enjoy the cool moonlight. When autumn comes, we enjoy the beauty of the trees. When winter comes, we will enjoy the snow. All of the seasons of our lives, can we accept and enjoy them? So it goes back to this idea of the rasa, the taste of life as it is in all of its elements, its seasons, its contrasts, its opposites. And there's a pearl of great wisdom, I think, in what he's saying. He says that when we accept ourselves, when we accept the totality of who we are, we are one with existence. And that is the foundation, I think, of true delight and enjoyment. One of the ways that we celebrate is through our relationships. Norman Fisher, who's a contemporary Zen teacher, says that wherever two points meet, that is where reality rises. It can be the meeting between two people or the point when we throw a rock into the water, when the rock hits the water, that's the meeting point between them. So any moment of meeting is a moment of relationship. And it's not just our relationship with each other, but our relationship to whatever we meet in the moment. Martin Buber, for those of you who are familiar with him, he talks about this that there is the experience of the sacred in the meeting point between I and thou. Norman Fisher says, whatever you meet in the moment is something that you appreciate. And even if it's something painful, it's also. Beautiful. So, all of our encounters are valuable and precious, like our encounters with nature. So, celebration is when we meet reality with full presence, because then all of our encounters, whether they're painful or joyful, are encounters with the nakedness of the moment, whatever it brings us. And when we drop our resistance in the moment it increases our chances exponentially of meeting reality with full presence and just think about how powerful it is when even for a moment we meet reality with full presence it's rich and deep and there's magic there's dralla in that it holds the possibility of transcendence and it opens us to grace We can be disarmed. We can fall into a mood of longing. We can drop to our knees in a state of awe or prayer. Or maybe we just taste exquisite pain, whether that be physical or emotional. But whatever it is, we can be undone and we can be recreated. And in a little while, I'm going to give a couple examples of that. So, I am going to shift gears now. And before I do, I want to open it up to see if there are any comments.
0: I was having a conversation with someone yesterday, and I recognized that there was some defensiveness in me. And something happened in the conversation, something opened up. And the way that you described being with full presence in relationship to reality, that just kind of happened by itself. I was surprised and I was in relationship with this person.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: I don't know that there's anything that I can really do intentionally, consciously to bring that about. It just seems to happen sometimes most of the time i do think that there is something in between us and others
3: well
1: these moments that i'm talking about are not moments that happen every minute of every day sometimes they can be cultivated and other times they just happen through grace and i think that when they do happen sometimes we <laughs> we have to we have to slow down and we have to notice them. And I think that that is one way that we can work with that is that we really notice, we recognize when that occurs. I want to talk more personally about experience I had, an encounter I had with trees as a testimony of delight and celebration in my life, and which was actually part of the inspiration for this talk. Recently, there's been a lot of joy and delight in my life. And in the two plus years prior to that, I had really descended into a well of grief due to the loss of many things, including, and most importantly, the death of people that I loved. And I describe this period as a kind of shattering, a dismemberment. It was a dissolution of certainty, of identity and assumptions about reality that I didn't even know that I had that just came crashing to the ground. And someone told me about this Man, Matt Licata. He's a Jungian psychologist. I guess some people would consider him a spiritual teacher, but he talks about the importance of doing psychological work along with spiritual work. And he's got a, I think, a really articulate way of describing this process. He says disassembling is a vital alchemical process. This disassembling creates the rich soil. From which rejuvenation and rebirth can take root. As we come into relationship with the ashes and tears that emerge from this, we open to the possibility that this process of falling apart isn't some great cosmic error, but an emissary of wholeness, a portal into specific regions of the heart and soul where there is data and information waiting for us. That we can only access there. And as I emerged from this liminal place of ashes and tears into a period of rebirth, I noticed that something felt different. I was aware that I could hold more of everything, whether it was joy or sorrow. And that I could actually love more, I could delight more, and my heart had been deeply tenderized. Natalie Goldberg, the writer, a number of years ago, she was given a potentially fatal diagnosis of leukemia. And being a writer, she wrote a memoir about it, and she said, we have to get bigger so we can hold the inconceivable. And she was referring to the shock of a cancer diagnosis, but I think that the inconceivable is whatever stretches us beyond our self-imposed and habitual reference points and our perceived limitations. What happened for me is I just got opened up into the inconceivable and During this phase, this rebirth phase, one thing that happened is that it just ignited my love for the natural world and specifically for trees. So, as a child, I grew up in the Midwest and there was just an abundance of deciduous trees, maple trees, oak trees, walnut trees, mimosa trees, and trees were my refuge. They were my friends. I was a tomboy, so I loved to climb up trees, and I would sit under trees, and I would sing songs to the trees, and my mom would rake piles of leaves in the fall, and I would jump up and down in the leaves, so I've had a lifelong relationship with trees. I listened to a lot of podcasts and talks, and I was listening to one recently where the speaker, Roshi Joan Halifax, she was speaking about trees. So I turned it up, I wanted to hear this, and she said, which I did not know, that the word tree is derived from the same root as dharma and truth in Sanskrit, which is pronounced dar. So tree, dharma, and truth are one. And she was talking about the Buddha, and she was saying how trees were the Buddha's companion and awakening, that the Buddha died under a tree, was born under a tree, had his awakening under a tree. And she said, we draw from the natural world in order to let go of the artifice of our conditioned existence. We come home through the medium of the natural world. And so when we come home to ourselves and the artifice of our conditioned existence drops away, we are naturally in a state of joy and delight And there is a return to what my teacher, Lee Zwick, called organic innocence. So I want to ask you, what are ways that you come home to yourself? There are many, many ways. So this was something that happened for me around trees. But I'd like to hear from you all. How do you come home to yourself when the artifice of your conditioned existence drops away?
2: I come home through silence and sitting practice, and just remembering that silence interpenetrates me and everything allows me to come home. So I appreciate doing retreat practice, even for a couple of days at a time. That's really the way to come home for me.
3: The thing for me is to remember to go from moment to moment. So when I feel okay, now I'm making myself a cup of tea. The other big thing is for me, nature and movement. (laughs) Like having a walk, that brings me back in my body and out of my thinking mind.
4: I had an
5: experience in nature years ago. Basically, it was through an experience of gratitude. I'd been walking for weeks in the mountains And I just had this pure moment of gratitude. And I think what happened was that I just bypassed all my usual filters and judgments and distinctions. And just through that sense of gratitude, I had this communion. I can't really describe it, but that was the key for me in that moment.
4: I too love trees, and I sometimes have a longing for forest bathing. It's almost like if I haven't been under. Tall trees for a long time, like months, I start really needing it like air or something. And this really got to be very clear to me during the pandemic that I was longing for trees. But the other thing that brings me back to myself is right now outside up here in the mesas and the high desert. Venus and Jupiter are together in the night sky in the West, and they're spectacularly beautiful. And so the night sky and the monsoon sky, the incredible changes that the sky goes through here in the desert, especially day and night, that for me is another really sure pathway if I'm struggling or I'm needing to return to myself and remember the sky. Is very strong for me. I also have a very strong feeling for trees. I spent some time standing
1: in Chi practice, feeling the roots of the trees and connecting with that through my
4: practice. The connection... Is another one
2: that just opens your heart.
1: Well, I was reading something from Lynn Twist. She told the story of a woman who lost her husband when he unexpectedly died. And of course, she was just plunged into deep grief. And she went to her teacher, her Buddhist teacher, and told him about it. And he said to her, Grieving is really, really important. It's medicine for our attachments. When the grieving is complete, what will be left is love, which is love not rooted in or colored by attachment. I wanted to tell this story and read this quote from her teacher because the intimate relationship Between love and grief, both are wild, raw, powerful, purifying. They are full of fuel, they're potent medicine. And this has been my experience. Of course, we have to be able to metabolize grief, but that's another subject. So, my story about trees is that one Saturday afternoon last fall was a beautiful, cool, sunny fall day. And my partner and I, we drove to the local nursery, which is about two minutes from our house. And we bought a young autumn blaze maple tree. And we put it in the back of the car and we brought it home and we wanted to plant it right away. So we dug the hole, had to find the right shovels, and we had the fertilizer and the water ready. We had the stakes to support the tree. And when we dug the hole, spread the roots out. We had to make sure the tree was straight. And I've never planted a tree in my life. I grew up in the city, never planted a tree. But of course, I love trees. And all of a sudden, something shifted, and it became a ritual. And if you know what an autumn blazed maple tree is, the leaves are this gorgeous, deep red color. So as I was planting the tree, what I experienced was that I fell in love with the tree the way you might fall in love with a person. I just fell deeply in love with this tree. And it was such a sanctified moment. It was really a moment of awe and beauty and reverence and meaning of the I Thou in the way that Martin Buber talks about it. And in a sense, it was like loving that one tree became a doorway into loving all the trees in the world. And maybe this was something I experienced as a child, but I fell in love with the soul and the essence of trees, with the planting of that one tree. And I just sat on the ground. It was a moment of grace. It was like being in a state of love and awe. And it was a moment of meeting reality with full presence. It was so expansive. And all the grieving and the tears and the tears and more tears I feel like that they were the medicine that brought me to the sanctity of that moment. There was something that got fertilized and prepared. There was something about the timing of it. I wasn't trying to have an experience. We we're just planting the tree, but it felt like being in the presence of Divine Mother. I felt embraced by Divine Mother through this tree. So it was very, very powerful. And that's, where I got the title for the talk from that experience with the tree. So, I want to talk a little bit more about Lynn Twist. I don't know if you all are familiar with her, but she's an amazing woman. She's really a global visionary and activist. She was the chief fundraiser for the World Hunger Project to end world hunger. And she is the co-founder of the Pachamama Alliance, which works to preserve the Amazon rainforest. And this is her story about trees. Being that she is working with the indigenous people in the rainforest, she took her two granddaughters to the Amazon and she sat under this tree, which is called a kapok tree, this huge kapok tree which is a holy tree for the indigenous people. And she was sitting there with her two granddaughters. And there was a group of native people that were sitting there with her. And when she tells the story, she's crying the whole time. And this is what she said. I got a huge download of love, but not love like I can articulate. Enormous power of love from the forest from the earth, from the trees. Obviously, I love my granddaughters, but it was a million, billion times more than the love any grandmother has for her granddaughters. It was a love for life. It's the love for life that will allow us to flourish, not just survive, that will allow us to hear and receive and know and taken the feedback from the mother to our species. Rather than operating out of fear, if we can operate out of love that is so strong, so unshakable and deep, there is nothing more powerful than that. It was the feminine coming through me, the divine appointment that is my appointment this lifetime. I'll tell you one more story. She's got so many really incredible stories, but this is another rainforest story. So she was walking in the Amazon forest behind the shaman named Minari Shiwa. She describes him. He was bare-chested and barefooted. He was holding a machete and cutting away through the forest. He just knew the land. He knew the forest so well. And she had like poured a whole bottle of insect repellent on her. She had high boots on, long sleeves. She didn't want to get bit. And she was a little bit tentative when she was walking through this wild area. So he's in front of her. At a certain point, he stops, he turns around, and he asks her, Can you feel them? And she said, Feel what? What are you talking about? And then he replied, the millions and millions of souls. And in that instant, she said they were there, the souls of the monkeys and the snakes and the butterflies and the insects and the trees, the ants, the leaves. And suddenly they all had souls and she could feel them as a part of her. And she talks about identity as Lynn just dissolved. And she has worked in the forest for years and had a relationship with trees as beings, but something was different. And now she said that since that moment, she has a love relationship with the natural world that she didn't have before. And she says, to expand the capacity of my heart to love like that has been monumental, game-changing and given me much more access to using the taproot of love to do the work that I do. It's always like that in my work, but now it's so much more vast and so much more infinite. So yes, we're talking about delight and enjoyment, but there's so many layers to that. And I think what Surrounds all of it and is the foundation. All of it is that there is this extraordinary love that is available when we meet reality with full presence, when nothing is excluded, and we are willing to feel it all in this journey of the awakening and tenderizing of the heart. That is what's possible. To me, these are transmissions. Reality is transmissive. These are transmissions from reality. But to me, these transmissions are really about some kind of extraordinary love. And that little experience, and I wasn't in the rainforest. I wasn't walking behind a shaman or anything like that. But just this one small, you know, my partner that I was planting the tree with, I didn't say anything to him. I didn't talk about it. I couldn't really speak at that moment, but these are always available, these transmissions from reality. Whenever we can meet reality to the best that we are able to with full presence. To me, that is part of the journey of the awakening of the heart. Can I read another poem by Kabir? Listen. The guest is inside you and also inside me. You know how the sprout is hidden inside the seed and we are all struggling here and none of us has gone very far. But friends, let your fear and let your pretensions go and look around inside. There, the blue sky opens out further and further and the daily sense of failure and weight Goes away. The damage I have done to myself fades as a million suns come forward with light when I sit firmly in that inner world. Listen, inside love, there is more joy than we know of. Rain pours down, although the sky is clear of clouds. There are whole rivers of light pouring through us. The universe is shot through in all its parts by a single sort of love, and those who hope to be reasonable about these things will fail. The arrogance of reason has separated us from that love. With the word reason, you can already feel the distance beginning to grow. Meanwhile, How lucky Kabir is that surrounded by all this joy, he sings inside his own little boat, rocking on the great ocean of life. These songs are about forgetting, about letting go the banks of the river. They're about loss, and they're about dying a little in order to love more, in order to live more. So friends, lift the veil that obscures the heart and you will find what you are looking for. I think there's a lot of that on the path. There's a lot of loss. In a way, the path seems to me to be an investment and loss. We lose a lot. Hopefully we lose our delusions. And what does he say? We're dying a little in order to love more. Who wants to say something?
5: I wanted to mention an experience that wasn't my own. It's a famous experience. John Muir, he was in the Sierras and a storm came up and he climbed up into a redwood as high as he could go and it was swaying wildly and he was clinging to it in the storm with really strong winds. and he was just ecstatic, waving back and forth for a long time. I don't remember how long it lasted, but that image stayed with me. I've been in force when wind has come up, I haven't climbed any trees, but I've certainly felt the trees coming alive in the wind and felt that energy. It informed so much who he was and what he did as someone who made it strong impact on the world. Probably the most profound experiences I've had have been with the aurora, with the Northern Lights, which I've been following ever since I was a kid growing up in Maine. And so I've had many encounters with the aurora. It's hard to even use the word physical when you're talking about the aurora. Yes, you can see it, but it's so hard to pin down. It moves And it's capricious in its movement. You never know what it's going to do next. Sometimes it'll disappear. Sometimes it'll come back. Colors shoot up and the colors fade. It's a state of complete changeability. It's light. It's the closest physical embodiment of Shakti that I can imagine. It's alive and yet you can't pin it down. And what that does internally to me i feel that i feel that that energy nothing reaches me like that in nature music is very similar in that sense
1: yeah when we were talking about what brings you home to yourself i was going to say music yeah yeah
2: i have a profound relationship with the ocean whenever i travel to the coast, I have to make sure that I get there, even just for a moment. So I was just in Brooklyn and went down the coast of New Jersey. So I had a beautiful opportunity. It's freezing cold, (laughs) wearing my coats and my hats and everything else, but I have to take my shoes off and I have to stand in the ocean and just be taken with it. That's the deep return to the mother For me, I was raised by the ocean, so as a child, we went to the ocean every week, if not day, in the summer, all during the winter. In storms, we would go down to watch the storms, and I am ecstatic at the ocean. I was driving down the Washington, Oregon coast. The sun was going down, and... It was misting. It's not really rain, but it is moisture in the air, really a lot of it. And there was a rainbow for I would say probably at least 10 minutes I was in the rainbow. And as I was driving along, the colors would be on the forest. So all of the trees would be red, orange, yellow, green, blue. Even now, and this was years ago, even now, I really don't have words about how that felt. But what you were saying about meeting that moment in full presence, it was like I couldn't not. Mm
1: -hmm. I can just visualize that up and down the Oregon, Washington coast. Yeah. Anybody else about anything? Doesn't have to be about nature.
3: (laughs) What came in my mind was for me what the fall brings, golden apples and the leaves which are falling. And there's for me so much grief because it's a saying goodbye mm-hmm. to summer and to the leaves which are falling and they are on the ground. I grew up in Germany, we have a lot of trees. So all the leaves and their amazing colors and we collected them as children and made pictures out of it and collages. But after a while, they were dry and we needed to throw them away. Like the fall is like, for me, this honey and grief. And the other thing, when I think about honey, it's also moments when somebody is really deeply listened to me. I just had this the other day with somebody Who was completely with me while I was sharing something? And this is honey for my soul. There's not a distinction anymore, as if the honey flows between the other person or the other being and me, or there's no me, no ego involved anymore. There is only oneness there. Yeah, this is honey.
1: Yeah. Well, I like the way that you're applying honey in the heart, to different experiences. To me, it's such an evocative term, honey in the heart, because I was using it as it applies to the awakening of the heart. But there are so many permutations and branches of that.
0: As you're speaking and people are speaking, something just keeps coming up for me. You referred to your teacher, Lee Lozowick, who's my teacher as well. And not that this is a perspective to emulate, and maybe it's due to the role that he had in working with people. But my experience was being with him at times when he was brought to natural surroundings and he was totally uninterested. Yeah. Driving through India, he told our host that he really didn't want to go to this waterfall that was so well known and obviously was going to be a gorgeous experience that people were going to have. And he would not get out of the car. He just said, No, he'll just sit there. Everybody else can go. The communication was left to people to determine for themselves what that might be about. I just mentioned that.
2: I collected a story from someone who told about when Lee had ran this bookstore in New Jersey, and there was an incredible thunderstorm happening outside. And he and another man, they were putting things away and tying things down. And the person who recounted the story was in the bookstore. And Lee came out of the storm drenched completely and totally ecstatic. So then the other guy comes in and he's like, I'm soaking wet. This is terrible. And he looks at Lee and Lee's like totally ecstatic. And the guy just turns around and walks back outside into the rain. So he could maybe get some juice in him. That was a different type of experience. It wasn't a tourist attraction. It was the raw wildness of of nature.
4: I'd like to share a story. This was in 1999. We were at the beach with Lee and we were playing bridge. It was on the western coast of France on the Atlantic. I kept looking at the waves coming in. So the surf was up and the waves were coming in and I was just feeling so drawn to it and loving watching them crash to shore and seeing them getting bigger and bigger. At one point, I said, wow, now is really the time to go out there and get into the surf. And Lee kept playing bridge. He didn't say anything. And then within 30 seconds or so, a little pause, he puts his cards down and he jumps up and he runs to the surf and he goes in. And there were about three of us that ran after him. And the next five minutes or more, we were in that wild crashing surf where if you weren't in relationship with it, you could just get crashed down into the sand and churned and turned upside down and come up gasping for air. I also had experiences of him saying, no, I don't want to see the sunset at Kanyukumari when the host was trying to get him to come up on the roof to look at this incredible sunset at the point where the three oceans merge on the tip of India. Nonetheless, it's so enigmatic what he actually meant and what he was doing with all of those different communications. For me, it's like the whole wide spectrum of his relationship with life in the moment. It could show up in many different ways.
1: Yeah. And he had other work to do. There were a lot of times when we were traveling and I saw something really extraordinary, but of course we couldn't stop. And I was completely okay with that, with missing a moment of natural beauty because I was so completely involved and one pointed focused in the moment or what was going on. Do you all want to hear a poem about a tree or did we talk too much about trees? More poems about trees. More poems about trees. This is Wendell Berry, the poet. This is called The Sycamore. In the place that is my own place, whose earth I am shaped in and must bear, there is an old tree growing, a great sycamore that is a wondrous healer of itself. Fences have been tied to it, nails driven into it, hacks and whittles cut in it, the lightning has burned it. There is no year it has flourished in that has not harmed it. There is a hollow in it that is its death, though its living rims whitely at the lip of the darkness and flows outward. Over all its scars has come the seamless white of the bark. It bears the gnarls of its history healed over. It has risen to a strange perfection in the warp and bending of its long growth. It has gathered all accidents into its purpose. It has become the intention and radiance of its dark fate. It is a fact, sublime, mystical, and unassailable. In all the country, there is no other like it. I recognize in it a principle, an indwelling, the same as itself and greater that I would be ruled by. I see that it stands in its place and feeds upon it and is fed upon and is native and maker i wanted to read a quote by pema chodron i just really love this quote and this is from her latest book how we live is how we die she says to the degree that our heart has opened in life to that degree it will open at death in this way When we move through the bardo of dying and beyond, we will automatically think of others. Instead of our heart contracting in the bardo, it will expand. We may get captured by fear and start to withdraw into ourselves. But then, because of our former practice, we'll naturally pull ourselves out of a tailspin. We'll look around to see who is there with us And we'll wonder what they are going through.
6: I wanted to share that just before I logged in to be with you all, I was listening to Leonard Cohen's version of Hallelujah. And the song is just so beautiful and brings to life the heart in such a beautiful way. It's deep and melancholy He worked on the song for seven years and in the process of it really brought the song out of the religiosity of the word hallelujah and brought it down to the earth for people to be able to experience the meaning of it in a very personal way. And so it has significance in that it speaks to the heart directly instead of coming through the religious connotations.
1: Yeah, that's an objective song. And there's a whole documentary on that song called Hallelujah. I really appreciate you all coming tonight. Thank you all for being here.